0: we came here looking for comfort this morning we may be disappointed (laughs) virginia owens is a professor at texas a&m and she exposed her class to the sermon on the mount years back sermon on the mount is matthew's recording of a very similar message possibly even the same message and she asked them to write an essay after they read some of this stuff what jesus said and one student said this I did not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. I found the sermon hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. If you've ever read The Sermon on the Mount, maybe you felt that. She was encouraged by this kind of honest, raw response. Because sometimes we just give sort of a a blah-blah response to things that we've read so many times. But this class, it was like, this is what she said. She said, at this point, I began to be encouraged. This was the real reaction A pristine response to the gospel. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. You ever read something in the Bible and find it offensive or hard to swallow? She said, for me, that somehow validates the significance of the Bible. Whereas the scriptures almost lost their characteristically astringent flavor during the past century the current widespread biblical illiteracy should catapult us into a situation more nearly approximating that of their original first century audience. This class did not like what they read there. Like Jesus is telling us to be perfect, to live in ways that just don't make sense and I can't do it. I'm not perfect. I don't like that. And if you doubt that Jesus was speaking so strongly in Matthew 5 where Matthew records it, he looks at the crowd that's listening. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what you think when you read that. The crowd there is looking at the Pharisees and they're like, these are the holiest dudes I know. They had so many rules that they followed. There was even one group known as the bleeding Pharisees. Because they knew it was wrong to lust after a woman, so they they added a rule to that. They said, we won't even look at a woman. So this group known as the Bleeding Pharisees, if a woman was walking down the street, would would look down. And they became known as the Bleeding Pharisees because of how often they ran into things. (laughs) Kind of funny, but the average listener here is saying, man, those guys are so holy, they hurt themselves. How am I ever going to exceed that righteousness? He doesn't only look at the Pharisees. Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If the Pharisees didn't freak him out enough, he goes goes ahead and goes to God. If you're feeling overwhelmed, they were feeling overwhelmed. Where, where is he going with this? Philip Yancey says that Jesus pushed the command of God further than any Pharisee dared push it, than any monk has dared live it. This sermon becomes a new moon in the moral universe that has exerted its own force of gravity ever since. It's like he made life impossible and then commanded us to keep it. What is he doing here? What is he telling us? Some have looked at and said, Jesus really, truly believes in a salvation that's by works. He disagrees with Paul. Some have read this sermon and some of the demands Jesus laid out said, that's what he's doing. Martin Luther had something to say to those guys. He said, this abomination of those that teach that turns the gospel upside down, hurls Christ from his throne and puts our works in his place. But you can understand how some might want to go there. When you read the Sermon on the Mount unfiltered, you can see how some might reach that conclusion. What is he saying? It's unattainable. What do we do with that? And listen to this. John Stott says it this way. What do we do with this? It's unattainable. And yet Jesus is saying, this is how we live. He says, only a belief in the necessity of, Impossibility possibility of a new birth in Jesus can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. What Jesus is doing is saying, this is how a disciple of mine lives. You can't do it. You need to be born again as you believe in me and walk in the new power of the Spirit. That's the only, only way to pull this off. He's going to read ways of living, and we're going to look at specifically loving enemies today that, that are beyond our normal mode of living. How many of you guys watched my Buckeyes on Monday night? Destroy Oregon. Okay, we have a running back, Ezekiel Elliott. He ran for 246 yards, four touchdowns. He broke all the, the running records on those two levels, yards and touchdowns for a championship game ever. And if you listen to the commentator's, Sometimes they say, Ezekiel, Elliott is in beast mode. All right, you ever heard that phrase used when somebody's just going going nuts in a game? It's like they're, they're on another level. What Jesus is talking about here in this sermon is God mode. He's talking about a mode of living that far exceeds anything we can do naturally. He's talking about God mode, supernatural mode. And I want you to see three ways that we need to have a love in our lives that is supernatural, that's in that God mode. The first thing I want to talk about is a strong love. God's disciples should be characterized by a strong love which overcomes evil with good. The context, you remember last week, Jesus had finished the Beatitudes and and he'd said, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now he's gonna pick up and say, this is how you treat the people that treat you that way. The people that oppose you in your life. Verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's positive action. Bless those who curse you. Positive words. And pray for those who abuse you. Taking them to God in your prayer life. Now, what do many people think when they read those words? Yeah, that we're being passive. Some would be even stronger. That that Jesus is telling us to be weak pansies with no backbone in this world. We don't like it. In Matthew 5, when he talked to this group about it, he looked at them and said, you've heard that it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Someone does this, they get that done to them. And in some measure... That still applies even today in courts of law. Jesus is not talking about legal systems and countries and governments and and armies here. They have a responsibility to bring punishment to the evildoer. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. There is a place for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. God says that's why he's instituted governing authorities. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true today. But what the Pharisees had done was taken that command that was for the government And they had brought that into their own personal relationships, which was not where it belonged. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth does not belong in our interpersonal relationships. Those should be characterized by love. In fact, right before we read about the power of the government, in Romans 12, at the end of that chapter, he talks to individuals. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, bring conviction. <laughs> it's like, what's, why is this person doing this? Makes them think. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Pharisees had brought eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth into a personal relationship level. We've been guilty of that at times, have we not? I will love this person if they love me, but... Woe is them if they cross me in any way. I'm going to get even. Jesus is going to come and he's going to challenge that. They had also heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said that in Matthew 5 in this sermon as well. Love your neighbor. And they had defined neighbor as those who are like me. Those who look like me, act like me, talk like me. Love me, care for me. But anybody who's different or from another country or, or treats me in any way wrong, I'm going to hate him. You remember Jesus would shake that up later in this book in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I'm not going to go through it because you know it, but he redefined neighbor for them. Neighbor is now a fellow human being in need whose need we know and are in a position in some measure to relieve even if said person is an enemy. That was the whole point of that parable. They hated Samaritans, yet it was a Samaritan who helped the Jew in need. He goes on. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And this is another one of those ones we read and say, come on, Jesus. It's not like you're telling me to be a wuss. Like, I I don't, I don't like that. That doesn't go well with my... Put myself up by my own bootstraps mentality. But I want you to notice what you're not doing here. You're not retaliating, but also you're not leaving. You're not running and hiding, are you? Someone strikes you in the cheek. You know how much courage it takes to stand there and continue to be faithful to why you're there in the first place? It's not passivity. You're loving the other person. You're not retaliating, but... You're not running either. He goes on to say, don't just not retaliate. I want you to do good things to them. Some of us are okay with, okay, I won't get revenge, but that's as far as it goes. <laughs> I'm not going to try to hurt them, but don't you dare ask me to do anything nice for them. Jesus says, from one who takes away your cloak, that's your outer garment, don't, don't withhold your tunic either. They want your coat, give them your shirt too. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. Matthew 5 says if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Sometimes Roman soldiers would do that. They'd grab a Jewish citizen and say, you're carrying my stuff for the next mile. You imagine these people that wanted a revolutionary Messiah hearing this, like, come on. Come on, Jesus. But what's going on? We we think we're giving in. We think we're weak. But I like this quote. Alexander McLaren says, why should Christians always let their enemies settle the terms of battle? We're not to be mere reverberating surfaces, giving back echoes of angry voices. Let us take the initiative, and if men scowl, let us meet them with open hearts and smiles, for a soft answer turns away wrath. What he's saying is their weapons will not help us win the war. If you fight hate with hate, in anger with anger in hurt with hurt. You are not going to win the war that God has us here to win. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, our weapons are not the weapons of this world. We do not wage war as the world does. What are the weapons of the world? Power. Impressive credentials, fancy words. God's weapons are what he says in his word and prayer and love. And we come back to, wow, maybe Jesus isn't telling us to be weak at all. He's giving us the one weapon we need to win the war that we're here to fight. The weapon is love. Paul reminds us that person hurting you is not the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We must go with love. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, Do so to them. This again is taking it to another level. There were other religions even at the time that Jesus said this that would say don't do anything to anyone else that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Okay, we can stomach that. Jesus takes it to that next level. Don't just stop there. If you would love something done to you, do it to them. Who is that enemy in your life right now? How would you want them to treat you this morning? Jesus says go and do that for them alfred Plummer says this to return evil for good is devilish to return good for good is human to return good for evil is divine that's what i'm talking about that god mode it's not good enough just to live on the same plane as the people around us that don't know jesus jesus is saying i've got something higher for you if you're my follower I want you on another level. I want you on the God level. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and who gave his life for the sake of Christ during the time of Nazi Germany, stood up for the truth when many so-called Christians in his country went along with Hitler's awful regime. So when he speaks, I listen. When he speaks about loving our enemies and loving those who hurt us, I listen. He says, what makes the Christian different from other men is the peculiar, the extraordinary, the unusual. Now, I want you to think about your Christian life right now. Is there anything peculiar about it? (laughs) Katrina. Is there anything (laughs) extraordinary about it? Are you just blending in with your neighborhood? So what makes us different is that which is not a matter of course. It is the more. It is the beyond all that. The natural is one and the same for heathen and Christian. The distinctive quality of the Christian life begins with the peculiar. For Jesus, the hallmark of the Christian is the extraordinary. What's extraordinary about the way you love people? He went on to define that peculiar. Listen to this. It's the love of Jesus Christ himself who went patiently and obediently to the cross. The cross is the differential of the Christian religion. If I put how we love people next to the cross, is there a, is there a comparison? That's what Jesus wants. James 1.20 says, Man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life God desires. Oh, how many times we love to fix those situations with our anger, right? And our revenge. James said it doesn't work in our individual lives. It doesn't work in these situations. It's not weakness. Spurgeon says we are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers. He said anvil, not doormat, right? You ever ever seen how strong and hard and firmly placed an anvil is? It takes the blows, but it doesn't give in. And the picture is that of Jesus Christ. You've seen Passion of the Christ. You've read the gospel accounts. Jewish police spat on him, blindfolded him, struck him in the face. The soldiers put a purple robe on him. They crowned him with thorns. They jeered at him. They smacked him, spit on him, and all that before they put him on a cross. And he allowed them to continue until they were finished. Do you see any weakness there in our Savior? No, you see love. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, here's how it predicted that in the Old Testament. I gave my back to my smiters and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. There's a big difference between weakness and godly love in the middle of it he continued to speak the truth you remember he was standing on trial and one of the high priests said strike him in the mouth john 18 in the middle of all the craziness (laughs) jesus said if what i said is wrong bear witness about the wrong but if what i said is right why do you strike me you talk about some courage I am who I say I am. I'm not going to retaliate, but I'm going to continue to speak the truth. Who do we celebrate tomorrow? Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King. Someone who knew this principle of nonviolent standing up for the truth as well as anybody ever has. Listen to some of the injustices he went through. Dr. Benjamin Mays listed these at his funeral. Benjamin Mays said, If any man knew the meaning of suffering, king knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death. Maliciously accused of being a communist. Falsely accused of being insincere. Stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. The words of Benjamin Mays. In Martin Luther King's own words in a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, based on the Sermon on the Mount, he wrestled with why are Christians to love and how are Christians to love. This is what Martin Luther King said in his own words. After centuries of injustice to his people, he said, Hate multiplies hate. In a descending spiral of violence and is just as injurious to the person who hates as to his victim. But above all, he said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend for it has creative and redemptive power. And he said, if we meet hate with love, we will obtain a double victory. What did he mean by double victory? We would win our freedom and our oppressors. What an example. Strong love. We overcome evil with good. The second thing I want to look at, supernatural love. And what I want to say here is we need to look up before we look out to those in our world. We need to look up before we look out. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. And here's the looking up for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Matthew adds in his version that He brings the sun and the rain on the good and the evil alike. That's the heart of our loving Father. He says, You want to call yourself His Son? you want to call yourself his daughter, then you you love that way too. He's not only good to those who supposedly deserve it or are better than others. He's he's good to all. The love here, as we know, is agape love. It's this genuine love that says, I'm going to love you even if you hurt me. I'm going to love you even if you're not attractive. I'm going to love you even if you can't do something back for me. I am going to love you. That's agape love. And we get this when it comes to parents and children, right? Generally, even those who don't know Jesus love their children that way. There was an example in the news just this week, a young gal named Ashley Bridges. In 2012, she found out she was pregnant. And as she was going through her pregnancy, her knee began to hurt her. She she had trouble walking, so she went to the doctor and saw doctor after doctor after doctor. Bursitis, arthritis, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Well, as she continued through her pregnancy, she finally saw someone else that took the time to do an x-ray, called her in and said, We need to meet. You've got bone cancer. For over a year, she had been going around nothing, nothing, nothing. So it it had been spreading. And they told her, if you don't have chemotherapy, there's a a good chance you're going to die. She was faced with a choice. I've got a baby growing inside of me. That chemotherapy will destroy that baby. Will end that little life. What do I do? She said this. She said they they told me what would likely happen to Paisley that she most likely wouldn't make it and I just knew. It wasn't a choice to me. It was like this is what needs to be done. She is first. I'm not going to kill a healthy baby because I'm sick. There's nothing wrong with her. Her life is just as important as mine if not more important. I mean as a mother my job is to protect my kids. That is agape love. That little baby had done nothing yet to deserve any love. The baby was just conceived. But the mother put that baby before, her. had the baby, and has since found out that in the meantime, that cancer spread to her brain. Listen to what the friend of this mother said. She said, I think this has ex- helped express to others who have never had children the depth of a mom's love the selflessness it's just like the best example that she has shown the entire world so for that she's definitely one of the most brave people i've ever met that's agape love for a child we we get that to some extent jesus is saying that's how i want you to love your enemies it was hard to swallow then, it's it's hard to swallow now. Warren Wearsby says, what he's getting at here, we want so bad to be vindicated in this world, to be right, to get revenge, to win, to be on top. And what Warren Wearsby says is vindication is not as important as becoming more like your father. Our character, our godliness is more important than winning the fight, the argument. Romans 5:8, we see it modeled by God Himself. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If, if God had waited till we got it right, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have happened. He says, That's how I love you. That's how I want you to love your enemies. Andy Minio in one of his songs, says this he says when do you ever hear a story about the hero dying for the villain there's a lot of great stories out there a lot of great movies that's a rare one there the trouble is a lot of us forgot that that's what we were we actually thought we were pretty desirable and god's lucky to have us (laughs) he loved us we're made in his image that's true but listen to how the bible describes us before christ Romans 6, 6 through 10. As you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There's one. We're ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, there's another descriptor, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, there it is, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Before you come to Christ, you are or were an enemy of God, and he loved you regardless. Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. When you look at the situations in your life where people are opposing you, what God is saying is stop looking to them to see if they deserve your love and start looking to the way I loved you and ask yourself, did you deserve that? And if you didn't, then you better pass it on. Because that's how I love you. Bonhoeffer said, Jesus called us to a visible participation in the cross. That's the cross where Jesus hung and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We want a strong love that overcomes evil with good. We want a supernatural love that looks up before it looks out. And lastly, Jesus calls us to a sober love that looks in before it looks out. I use the word sober because of Romans 12, 3. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's the heart of the matter right there, isn't it? (laughs) We think we're a whole lot better than everybody around us and they don't deserve our love. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. Sober love, look in before you look out. And here's how Jesus says it, verse 37, judge not. And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And we could have done a whole sermon on just this: Judge not, lest you be judged, because it's misused so many times in our world. Many would say, see, you can't call anything sin. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Part of the reason we know that is right after this, he also said, talks about helping a brother who has a speck in his eye. That, that assumes, I have some discernment, doesn't mean shut your eyes. One man said it this way, Jesus does not, cease, does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which... Help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. Listen, later on he says you'll know a good tree by its fruit because it produces good fruit. you know a bad tree by its fruit because it produces bad fruit. That assumes some ability to discern fruit, but where it becomes dangerous is where we set ourselves where only God belongs. When, when we do that, we begin to judge them harshly in a negative, destructive way that beats them down and we love it when we can nail them. Ever lived that way? Anybody living that way right now? Just looking for that next opportunity to nail that person? We, th- we think the worst of their motives. Even though we don't really know their motives, we assume, oh man, they're doing this for this reason and that reason when we can't see their heart at all. Anytime they come up with an idea, we we poo-poo it because it's them. We can't get excited about anything that they would, any ideas they would have. When they make a mistake, we're so ungenerous toward them. So ungenerous. Love covers over a multitude of sins is so far removed from us. And what happens is we put ourselves in the wrong role in their lives. Because since when have they been my servants, responsible to me? And since when have I been there, Lord and judge? That's what Paul says. He says, I'll be judged by God. Now, we, we, we have this habit of putting on different glasses. McLaren talks about this. When we look at ourselves, we got these glasses that make, make things look really awesome. <laughs> we just overlook the, the faults that we have. But we got another pair of glasses that, that we put on when we look at those enemies in our lives. And boy... Every little thing they do wrong. That's all we see, right? We need to have the attitude of Paul. Paul the apostle. Can you imagine him saying this? Man who changed the world for Jesus. 1 Timothy 1:15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. That wasn't hyperbole for Paul. He knew his own sin. And what Christ had done to turn him from it. Do you know the gravity of your sin? And what Christ has saved you from? Because until you grapple with that, you're going to have the wrong perspective on your brother. He goes on to say this. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. What's he saying? He's saying, you want so badly to help that other person grow and change from their sinfulness and stuff, but he's like, you can't lead them somewhere where you haven't been yourself. And until you get an honest look at where you need to grow and allow God's grace to work that growth in your life, you ain't going to be able to help them. Can a blind man lead a blind man? They're both going to fall into a pit. Verse 41, why do you see the speck? that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye some of the pictures Jesus uses never get old the speck in the one guy's eye and you see this guy walk in with this giant tree sticking out of his face like let me take a look at that see it's it's a great picture Jesus is such a great storyteller he says how can you say to your brother brother let me take the speck out that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in Your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You see, he doesn't tell us to ignore a brother's sin. That wouldn't be loving, because we know that sin is detrimental to them, that it keeps them from joy and peace and fulfillment. That's why when people say, judge not lest you be judged, mean don't even talk about it, they're wrong. But he does say, before you do that, you better make darn well sure that you've looked at your own life, looked at your own sin, been honest about the ways you fall short and be honest about why you're going to this person. Because if you're going as a judge, that's the wrong reason to go. If you're going hiding your own stuff so you look better than them, that's the wrong way to go. If you're going, you go as a brother or a sister because you love them and you want better for them. If you haven't gone through those steps, go find the wood chipper and work on that tree in your eyeball before you go. That's what Jesus is saying. Chrysostom said, correct him, but not as a foe nor as an adversary exacting a penalty but as a physician providing medicine. Final quote from John Stott. He says, We need to be as critical of ourselves as we often are of others and as generous to others as we always are to ourselves. Then we shall act toward others as we would like them to act toward us. So I want to go back to where we started Picture in your mind those people in this world who are opposing you, making your life difficult, persecuting you for your faith, being a thorn in your side for any reason, arguing with you, making life a pain. Got them? (laughs) Don't point. (laughs) Now I want to ask you, close your eyes and go with me before our Father and say, Father, help us to have that strong love that you've had for us that overcomes evil with good. Father, help us to have that supernatural love. Help us to lift the eyes of our heart to the way you loved us even when we didn't and don't deserve it before we look at that person in our lives. And Lord, help us to look in before we look out, to have that sober love. Show us right now any any motives we have in that relationship that are really based on my pride, my need to, to be right, my need to be on top. Lord, break us of that and move us to a place where we genuinely care for our our brothers and sisters and father I, I pray that if anyone in this room is feeling as overwhelmed as i am when when we read this like wow how in the world are you going to ask me to apply this this week that that's really what i'm thinking about all right we've heard it now god how are you gonna what opportunities are you going to put in my way to live this out and, and i'm a little scared a little overwhelmed like those texas a and m students by this sermon on the mount that's a good place to be because as a group father we come to you and say we need your help to live in this mode we can't do it on our own we want to live as followers of jesus and that only comes as the holy spirit has freedom in our lives So prepare us for those opportunities. Help us not to dismiss Jesus' words as hyperbole or exaggeration because we'd love to do that. I think we sense in our hearts when we read the rest of the New Testament these things agree with your word elsewhere. So please help us not to dismiss them. Use us to this end this week and may a watching world come to know you because they've seen your love heard your truth and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.